Well, folks, it's that time of the year again. And yes, I'm talking about a bunch of tamales and presents, but I'm also talking about COVID. Sadly, cases are rising again, and it's just one part of this winter's triple-demic. The jump in COVID cases and hospitalizations is about 40% and adds to the increasing numbers of flu and RSV. Earlier this month, the CDC and other public health agencies recommended that major cities, including Los Angeles, start reaching for masks. Again, will this ever end? This is the sort of question that Dr. Anthony Fauci has been answering one way or another for decades. I have 54 years of experience as a scientist at the NIH, 38 years of experience as the director of the Institute, and I've had the pleasure and the privilege of advising seven presidents of the United States. But he's about to end that streak. In just eight days, Fauci's going to be stepping down from his multiple leadership roles. So before he ends his tenure, we want to get some final words of advice from the man himself. I'm Gustavo Arellano. You're listening to The Times, essential news from the LA Times. It's Friday, December 23rd, 2022. Today, we hear from Dr. Fauci about COVID, his career, the future of public health, and one of his favorite Catholic saints. Dr. Anthony Fauci, welcome to The Times. Thank you very much. It's good to be with you. So in just about a week, you're going to be stepping down from your current roles. But before you go, I, I have some questions about COVID. Of course, COVID. Pretty soon here, we're going to be entering our fourth year of this pandemic. Are you worried about the collective health of the nation right now? Well, First of all, we're doing much, much better now than we were doing a year ago where we were having literally 800,000 cases a day and three to 4,000 deaths. But I'm concerned that we might get complacent because we're not out of this yet. We are approaching the colder weeks and months of the late fall and the early winter. We're approaching a big holiday season in December and people will congregate indoors and if you look at the fact that we're seeing an uptick in infections and even in hospitalizations, and we really need to do better in getting people vaccinated. We only have 69% of the total population have gotten their primary series, and only half of them have gotten their first booster. And the thing that's most troubling to me is that we have a good updated booster, the bivalent BA45, and yet only 14% of the eligible population in this country has actually received that. We've got to do much better than that. And you're asking, what do I foresee as we go into the fourth year? Well, you know, our fate is in our own hands. If we do the appropriate public health measures to mitigate against any further surges, we should do fine. But that's not going to happen spontaneously. We've got to go out and we've got to get vaccinated. We've got to get boosted. And if people do get infected and they're a high risk, we have very good antivirals that are available. We're underutilizing the antivirals like Paxlovid and other antivirals. So there are a lot of things that we can do better to prevent any more serious issues vis-a-vis -vis more surges, increase in hospitalizations and increases in deaths. And then one of the other things that we still have and are probably going to have for a while, long COVID. I know people who suffer from it. To what extent are people at risk from those long-lasting symptoms? And do you think we should maybe be taking more precautions because of that? Yes, of course. We need to take long COVID seriously. It's a real phenomenon. 
depending upon the criteria that you use to define it, anywhere from a few percent to up to 15 or 20% of people will have the prolongation and the persistence of some level of symptomatology that goes on for weeks and even months or longer following the resolution of the acute phase of the infection. Now, some of those symptoms could be troublesome, but not totally incapacitating, like chronic fatigue and inability to perform at the level that you were before. But in some unfortunate individuals, it can be really rather incapacitating. And there's an estimate that about a million people in the United States have not been able to go back to work due to long COVID symptoms. That's quite serious. And if you look, even if a very small percentage gets long COVID and you look at the pure volume of numbers of people who've been infected in this country, almost over 100 million people, you're talking about a significant impact on public health. There's just been so much fatigue these days, really from the beginning when it came to the pandemic. And a lot of that comes from all the misinformation and confusion that has spread around. There's been protests, campaigns against public health agencies and officials like you. What do you think it's going to take for the skepticism to die down and for people to continue getting boosted or even vaccinated? I don't think there's an easy answer to that. There is a level and a profound nature of the divisiveness in this country, which is really very disturbing, where public health principles and public health recommendations are influenced by political ideology. We've got to pull away from that. I'm just hoping that the country as a whole, not everybody's going to feel that way, but more and more people realize that the common enemy is the virus, and we've got to pull together utilizing good public health principles to prevent further spread and to make sure individuals who otherwise would not have been protected if they didn't get vaccinated, we've got to get them vaccinated because pulling back and not getting vaccinated results in the loss of lives. Vaccination is a life-saving intervention. We've got to utilize that to its maximum. Do you think the Biden administration is making headways towards that? The Biden administration is certainly trying. Uh, I mean, they're doing everything they can. They just came out with a plan as we approach the winter to make it much more easy for people to get vaccinated, to make it much more easy for people to be tested. They've reactivated the covidtest.gov website so that people can now go in and continue to get their free tests. So the administration is trying very hard to alleviate what is potentially going to be a problem as we get further into the winter. Coming up after the break, Dr. Fauci had the lessons he learned from activists during the HIV AIDS epidemic and how that work prepared him for the fight against COVID. Dr. Fauci, tackling COVID is how you spent your last years in public service, but you also spent a big chunk of it focusing on HIV and AIDS. And both of those pandemics have been pretty polarizing. As someone who has been so deeply involved in the response to both emergencies, did you notice any patterns between the two or even any major differences that caught you by surprise? Well, the major difference is much, much clearer than the similarities. And the difference is that there wasn't really polarization 
during HIV. There was a bit of a stigma in the beginning, which still we have traces of that now. But the pushback against the government and against authority by the activists was motivated by real appropriate concerns that the government was being too rigid in their inclusion or lack of inclusion of the constituents who are either infected or at risk. The regulatory approach towards the approval of new drugs was also time-honored and, and good for another era, but it didn't apply well to HIV AIDS. So what the activists were trying to do, and ultimately successfully they did, was to gain the attention of the authorities like myself. And one of the best things I've ever done in my career was to listen to them. And even though they were pushing back, being iconoclastic and theatrical and disruptive, they were doing that for a good purpose, to get our attention on issues that deserved our attention. And once we started listening to what they were saying, we actually realized that what they were saying was absolutely correct. We modified our approach and the system improved. That's very different from the divisiveness, the disinformation, the conspiracy theories that we're experiencing now with COVID. Very, very different. You mentioned the activism and you described it as theatrics. Was there one protest or one action in particular that you remember that stuck with you and maybe told you, maybe I should start listening to what they're saying instead of just dismissing the theatrics? Because I remember at that time, people were just saying like, oh, they're just loudmouths. But obviously you listened and you talked to them. One of several things which turned me around was when I went to San Francisco to the Castro district. And I went to the bedside of a person who was suffering from HIV, who was also losing his vision due to cytomegalovirus infection, which destroys the retina. And there was a very rigid approach in the FDA that if you were on a drug for HIV, you couldn't be on a drug for the CMV. So it was sort of didn't make any sense. And I went to the person's room and he said, Dr. Fauci, you guys are telling me I could either take a medicine for HIV, live a little longer, and then go blind, or I could take a medication for my CMV, save my vision, but die from HIV. That is a completely untenable choice. And that's when I realized, oh my goodness, this guy makes perfect sense. We've got to be much more flexible. How important of a role then do you think public activism plays in improving public health? I think well-informed public activism with good intention does a great deal to improve public health. The witness in case in point is how the approach to HIV was so vastly improved by embracing the activist community. Do you think we might see something similar today especially coming from people who are struggling with long COVID, because a lot of the government response has been vax, 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 which is important as well. But with long COVID, a lot of people are saying, well, the government really hasn't started paying attention to what's happening to us. That's not the case. A lot of effort is being put in. The frustration is that it is such a perplexing syndrome and its mechanisms of how you get long COVID are really not very well understood. There are things that are showing some promise, like people who are vaccinated and get infected have a less 
likelihood of getting long COVID. And we're doing studies to determine if treating more people, even people who are not at risk for severe consequences, might lessen the incidence of long COVID. But we've really got to get down to what the underlying mechanisms are if you really want to have evidence-based approach towards preventing and treating it. How close are we to determining long COVID, why it happens and why it affects some people but not others? In other words, how much of a mystery does COVID-19 still remain to you? Well, certainly long COVID is a mystery. I mean, there are incidences with other infections of post-infection symptoms, particularly prolonged fatigue and exercise intolerance. But the incidence and degree to which we're seeing it with COVID-19 is unique. And that's the reason why we're paying so much attention to it. After the break, how prepared are we for the next pandemic? Dr. Fauci, we've all been told that COVID-19 is not going to be the last pandemic that we'll live through. So what actual tactical defenses or steps should the government and public health agencies be taking now to prepare for the next pandemic? Well, we do have a very well worked out pandemic preparedness plan that we put together some time ago. The problem is we have not gotten the funding that we need to begin to implement that. I want to say that the Congress has been very generous in giving us billions and billions of dollars for what we've been able to accomplish with the vaccines and with drugs. But now they are pulling back and stopped and have not honored our requests for supplemental funding. And it doesn't look like, given the budget hangup we have now with the continuing resolution, that we're going to get any additional money at all that we really do need if you want to prepare for the next pandemic. Even though we just are still in the midst of a pandemic, there's still people who don't think that there's going to be another pandemic. So why bother spending more money to try no, to... No, I, I, I don't think... I, I just think they feel we've spent enough on this and that's it. And they're not focusing on the fact that when we get this behind us, there will be the threat of another one. We don't know whether it's going to be next year, five years from now, or 30 years from now. That's the reason why there's the reluctance to put so much money in it because it is so unpredictable. What are you looking forward to after stepping down and what, if anything, is going to bring you back? Well, I'm not going to come back into the federal government unless something very unusual happens. I would doubt that that's the case. I never rule anything out. But I'm not leaving the scene. I'm going to be doing what I'm doing about lecturing, about teaching, about writing, about hopefully serving as an example for younger individuals who are interested in going into science or who are already in science and need some encouragement about pursuing their passion. The one thing I can offer them now is I have 54 years of experience as a scientist at the NIH, 38 years of experience as the director of the Institute. And I've had the pleasure and the privilege of advising seven presidents of the United States. So I do have something to offer people in the terms of experience and I'm going to use the venues of lecturing and writing to do that. What is going to be the through line, whether you're speaking to kindergartners or scientists? What's like the one message you're going to be emphasizing above all? I'm going to emphasize the importance of 
public health and the importance of medicine and science because we're having a real anti-science movement in this country that's very disturbing. And I'd like to counter that by emphasizing the importance of putting confidence in the scientific method. Finally, Dr. Fauci, you're the product of a Jesuit education, both high school and college. You've spoken about how formative the Catholic religious order's approach to critical thinking was to your life. What's one lesson from the Jesuits that you think all Americans can learn from? Well, it's the lesson, which is the motto of my high school and my college, which is service to others. And that's what I think we need to get much more of that in society, of people caring not only about themselves, but caring about others and caring about making society better. If more people did that, I believe we'd be much better off than we are right now. What saint do you like more, St. Francis Xavier or St. Ignatius of Loyola? (laughs) I'd have to say St. Ignatius of Loyola because St. Francis Xavier was our big competitor in high school basketball. (laughs) And since I was the captain of the basketball team, they were a good team and we were a good team and we always were playing against each other. So I have to go with St. Ignatius Loyola. Dr. Anthony Fauci, thank you so much for this conversation. My pleasure. It's good to be with you. Before we go today, some sad news. LA's famous mountain lion, P-22, has passed away. I talked to my colleague, Laura J. Nelson, earlier this year in an episode about everything P-22, so it's fitting that Laura gives a big cat the send-off that he deserves. P-22 surprised the world in 2012 when he showed up on a photograph that had been taken in Griffith Park by a motion-sensing camera. The first glimpse that scientists caught of him were his fluffy hindquarters. To get to the park, he had made an improbable trek of about 20 miles all the way from his birthplace in the Santa Monica Mountains. He somehow made it through the Hollywood Hills and safely across the 405 and 101 freeways. P-22 quickly became a celebrity. He was introduced to the world in an L.A. Times story, and then he appeared in an iconic National Geographic photo, prowling past the Hollywood sign at night. One of the most unusual parts of P-22's story is that the city rallied around him instead of demanding that he be removed. Scientists had thought that P-22 would eventually leave the park to find a mate and to find more space to roam. Griffith Park is right in the middle of L.A., and it's only about 6% the size of the usual territory for a local cougar. But instead, P-22 stayed in Los Feliz for more than a decade. Over the years, catching a glimpse of P-22 on a nighttime prowl became one of the most coveted celebrity sightings in Los Angeles, and people across the city fell in love with him. I think P-22 really had me at hello. You know, our boy has had some misadventures, but L.A. still loves him, and I think that's what's wonderful. There was something about him that was so human, or maybe it was something in me that connected with him. I loved his daring spirit and his piercing golden eyes. He walked so majestically amongst the humans. Perhaps one central reason for loving P-22 is that he seemed to take us away from this obsession with ourselves. 
and uh, he reminded me and us who we are, shorn of our illusions, and that we must care for one another and all living beings on our beautiful planet. I'm so saddened by P22's demise. I'm just, uh, it's weird. It feels like my relative has died, you know? D-22 was considered a celebrity in Los Angeles, for sure. But at the same time, P-22 is far more beloved than most actual celebrities in Los Angeles. So many of us Angelinos saw ourselves in P-22. He was an aging bachelor who had to adjust to a too small space in a big city. He had shaken off society's expectations for him, and he had crossed borders and freeways in search of a home. But he was isolated and lonely, waiting for a mate who never arrived. His presence in Griffith Park was also a reminder that Los Angeles is far wilder than it appears. We have some of the highest levels of biological diversity of any big city in North America. P-22 also became the poster cat for wildlife preservation. He was the face of a campaign called Save LA Cougars, which raised money to build a bridge for cougars and other animals across the 101 freeway. I believe that P-22, as a mountain lion, uh, expressed that there is a dire need for a balance between what the natural world of Los Angeles as well as the urban. P-22 became a world-famous spokescat for coexisting with urban wildlife. We must honor the spectacular life of P-22 and work towards a new paradigm for wildlife. P-22 was euthanized Saturday because of several chronic health problems and injuries from being hit by a car. I cried when I learned that he had died. All the scientists and wildlife officials who cared for him and cared about him were crying too. It felt like the whole city was in mourning. P-22 is an important part of scientific research into wildlife, but he was also a fixture in the city. Los Angeles had formed a bond with him and loved him fiercely. It hurt to know that he was in pain at the end and that humans had done this to him. I think P-22 captured our hearts because every part of his story was unlikely. He beat the odds. He somehow made it to Griffith Park. He stayed there for a decade and L.A. embraced him as one of our own. There are other mountain lions in L.A., but there will never be another P-22. He was just a remarkable uh, mountain lion being. I greatly am saddened by his passing, but he has taught us a lot during his time on this planet. I hope that he is prowling with all the space he needs wherever he is. Long live P-22. Thanks to all of our listeners and readers who called in to share their memories of P-22. And thanks to Laura for her obit. P-22, you were loved, man. And that's it for this episode of The Times. Essential news from the LA Times. Kasha Brasalian and Ashley Brown were the jefas on this episode. Hiba El Orbani was the editor, and Mike Heflin mixed and mastered it. Our show is produced by Denise Guerra, Kasha Brasalian, David Toledo, Ashley Brown, and Helen Lynn. Our editorial assistants are Roberto Reyes and Nicholas Perez. Our engineers are Mario Diaz, Mark Nieto, and Mike Heflin. Our editor is Kinsey Moreland. Our executive producers are Hasmina Aguilera, Shawnee Hilton, and Hiba El Orbani, and our theme music is by Andrew Ethan. I'm Gustavo Ariano. 
We'll be back Monday with all the news in this month. Gracias.